Father, what do we have that has not been given to us? And what do we possess that has not been received from you? So we come before you this day, Lord God, recognizing that you are the giver of good gifts, that you open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. So we're grateful, Lord God. We are blessed this day. We give you praise that you have not only provided, but you sustain all things. You've created the world. You sustain it. You uphold all things in your hand. And we are thankful and grateful that nobody can snatch the elect out of your hand. So we are here this day with great praise and thanksgiving. We are here this day acknowledging that you invite us to come into this building and to hear your word proclaimed. And we do that in song and in prayer and in the reading of the scripture and the proclamation in a me- in message form, Lord God. And uh, I pray that our lips would extol you to one another, that we would encourage one another with your word. Lord, we can look around the world and there are all sorts of things to talk about. Let us never neglect talking about you. Let not the words of politics diminish our exhorting one another and encouraging one another in your word. Let not the words of talk about virus and pandemic be so pronounced that we never assure one another of the grace of God and we never speak the gospel to one another. Father, there are many important issues that need to be addressed and talked about. But let our lips be ones, Lord God, where we extol you first and foremost. So let your name be honored in our minds. Let your name be honored in our hearts and let your name be honored on our lips and let us spur one another on to love and to good works. These things we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. One of the things that we do at Reconcile Church after the sermon, we pretty much every Sunday say these words or sing these words. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. You might know it as the doxology is probably something very familiar to you. So as we come to the book of Numbers, we are going to come to perhaps the most familiar and well-known passages in the book of Numbers. You may not have known that it's in the book of Numbers, but you all know this. Many of you know this passage of text. Those who would never claim to be Old Testament scholars or certainly experts in the book of Numbers would recognize the words that we are going to read today. We've heard them uh, stated at the end of services, at the end of sermons. It is perhaps one of the great passages of text. It is the Aaronic blessing. It is the blessing of Aaron. And so I hope you will join us. Turn with me to the book of Numbers chapter 6. We will be looking at verses 22 through 27. We have just a few passages of text today, and yet um, we can barely fit the depth of meaning from these verses into our short time together in this sermon. So before we get into the text, let's go ahead and look at and consider the context in what we are, where these, where this passage sits. We need to remind ourselves that God is preparing Israel for departure. They are going to be departing from the wilderness of Sinai. Um, it's been Two years since the Exodus, uh, Numbers chapter 1, verse 1, tells us that this occurs in the second year of their stay at Sinai. And um, God has, as they've been brought out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, they've been brought into the wilderness. Um, God there establishes his covenant with them. He 
describes for them the terms of the covenant. In other words, all covenants have, have agreements. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I expect of you. And so we see those terms of the covenant, especially laid out in the book of Leviticus. We see the, uh, um, uh, and certainly in Exodus chapter 20, which are the Ten Commandments, these are the terms of the covenant. The tabernacle has been uh, commissioned and has now been constructed. And by the time we get into Numbers chapter 1, uh, the tabernacle is complete. Um, we're going to see that the tabernacle has been, um, well, we've seen that the tabernacle has been constructed. The priesthood has been established and commissioned, and they are now ready to head to the land of promise. That's now, everything's set. They've been two years at Sinai preparing for this moment. They are now about to journey to receive the promise that God has made that I will give you this land, and this is the land of promise. They're getting ready to go. So, that's just the general idea of where we're at in the book of Numbers. Just to give you an idea of where we are going to um, go today. So, by way of preview, we need to understand and remind ourselves that the difference from Sinai to the land of promise is not a very long journey. It's actually distance-wise and even time-wise a very short journey. But... It is, nevertheless, a journey that is going to be filled with challenges. Where are we going to get the food to feed us? Where is the water going to come from? What about enemies who might seek to attack us? What about dangerous things like snakes? All of those things. So just by this little map up here, we're way down here at the southern part of the map, down here in the area of Sinai. They're just going to kind of go over into this area. Here's Jericho. We know about the story of Jericho. So it's really a short travel. Just kind of follow up this way and they'll be there. We know that it doesn't take them a week or two. It takes them 40 years. But from their perspective, we got about another couple weeks of journey and we're going to be there. God understands that the journey is going to um, be filled with challenges. And with those challenges, there will come the temptation to question God. Has God, is God really for us or did he bring us out here to die? And so before they ever get going, before they ever start this journey, they are going to begin with the assurance that God has blessed them and he is with them, and that he keeps them. I find it interesting that before they begin their journey, they don't begin it with a prayer. I mean, when I get ready to go on, and when Simone and I get ready to go on vacation, probably before we leave the, the driveway, well, let's pray. Lord, have mercy on us. Protect us. Protect us from anything that might happen. Keep our car from breaking down. You probably do the same thing. In fact, some of the prayer requests we get every week are pray for traveling mercies. But Aaron is not commissioned for, to, to petition for traveling mercies. Not that there's anything wrong with that. What they need is to know that God has blessed them and kept them and that His presence is with them. Because regardless of what happens, if our car, on, while we're traveling, if our car breaks down or we have an accident, we need to know that God has not abandoned us even then. And so at the very foundation of this, tra- of this trip is the blessing of God's presence. So I find it interesting in the midst of all of this administration, right? We have let's count the people and assign them their their place where they're supposed to camp and how they're supposed to travel. Appoint the priests and count them out, assign them their duties, give them their tasks. Administration is important. Especially when you're dealing with two many two, two million people or so. You better have your administrative task in place. But in the midst of all of that, 
God says your most important asset is still me. This passage then is God's confirmation or affirmation that their greatest need will not be withheld. And so, as a preparation, the people are given a blessing. And I just want to spend a few moments talking about the structure of this poem. And some have mentioned that perhaps it is the earliest piece of Hebrew poetry that we have. But I do want to talk a little bit about its composition and its structure because the way it's composed gives us a little bit of understanding of, uh, helps us understand the meaning of the poem. And it begins, and I'm sorry, but I couldn't get my Hebrew font to work, so you're just going to have to uh, go along with this. But it's structured in such a way that the first line of the poem is three letters, or I'm sorry, three words. Doesn't show up in English, but there are three Hebrew words. The second line is five Hebrew words, and the third line is seven Hebrew words. All of them begin with the Lord. All of the lines begin with the Lord. And so we have three lines, five lines, seven lines, and it ends with the word peace. It is as though you could almost maybe relate this to a piece of music that rises to a crescendo. um, And this crescendo, this poem ends, rises to a crescendo, and it ends with the peace of the Lord. And so everything is being driven in that direction. Everything is being added to us to end with this idea of shalom. God is your peace. So we see the centrality of God. We see that it moves and it builds to a crescendo. And it ends with God being our peace. So let's go ahead and read our text and then we'll look at it in a little bit more depth. Chapter 6, verses 22 through 27. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So we want to begin with this idea of God being the source of all blessing, because you will note, uh, first of all, that this is God's word. The Lord spoke to Moses, and note the chain of, of, of authority. The Lord speaks to Moses to tell Aaron to tell the people. But this is God's word. Israel thinks this is going to be some short blessing, some short journey. God knows it's going to be 40 years. If you're Aaron in Israel, you're going, man, a couple of weeks we're going to be in the promised land. It's going to be awesome. God knows it's going to be 40 years. You need to know that even in the midst of that judgment of 40 years, I am your God and you are my people. When you encounter rebellion, the death of loved ones, sickness, uncertainty, all of these things, I have not abandoned you. The blessing remains. And so this is God's word. And we have made, uh, we have made mention of the fact of these words, the Lord spoke to Moses. This is one of the key phrases in the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers begins with the Lord spoke with Moses. Oftentimes we, uh, in fact, I almost titled our series, The Lord Spoke. I think that would be an appropriate title. I ended up calling it In the Wilderness. But, um, but the Lord spoke. So the next time you read the book of Numbers and you might get bogged down and you kind of think, oh man, look at all these numbers and people and names and gosh, another census. What am I going to do? This is Start instead of looking at that and being like, 
I don't know, discouraged or frustrated or grumble over God's word. Start reading this to see the Lord spoke, the Lord spoke, the Lord spoke. You will see God making himself known to his people. And so God, this is God's word. What they have in the midst of their trials, what they need to know that in the midst of their rebellion, in the midst of their trials, when snakes and Poisonous serpents are encroaching upon them when enemies are attacking them. They have, thus saith the Lord. That's what they have. And you will note that in this poem, in this blessing, each line begins with the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. This is, many of your Bibles, the Lord is capitalized. Each of the letters are capitalized. This is God's covenant name with his people. This is Yahweh, the Lord's covenant name. Each line of the blessing has the Lord as the subject. And this is grammatically unnecessary. You could make this grammatically correct by saying, the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That is grammatically acceptable. But the Lord said, no, make sure that my name is the subject of every single one of these blessings. His covenant name is a repeated reminder that God is the source of all grace. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And then, just to cap it off, the very last statement in verse 27, and I will bless them. And I want you to note the emphatic I. In other words, there's actually, there's a, there's the word I and then there's a little preposition or pronoun for I as well. In other words, I, I will bless them. Or God is saying, I myself will bless them. The emphasis is on, I am the source of their blessing. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. I myself, I, I will bless them. They need to know this. We need to know the source of blessing. The emphatic I. And then that brings us to the next question, at least a question for me, is why? Why the emphasis on the source of blessing? Well, that's a pretty simple answer, don't you think? Because we tend to forget. We especially tend to forget when the road is hard. When life is good, it's easy to remember the blessings of the Lord. But when there is no water and there is no food and there are fiery serpents in the camp and your loved ones are dying, where is the Lord then? Where is the Lord when I prayed for traveling mercies and we ended up in an accident? Is the Lord still there? Where was God when such and such happened? We need to remember the source of blessing because we too often look for blessing in all the wrong places. We tend to forget the source from whom all blessings flow. And I want to point out to you Jeremiah chapter 3, verse, I'm sorry, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. Um, I'm not sure why my animation didn't work there, but I want you to consider Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, which isn't working on there, so I'll just read it. I don't know either. You're doing everything right back there. But listen to Jeremiah 2.13. This is a rebuke. God is speaking. Well, I'll go to verse 12. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Here's the reason why. Verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Israel had abandoned their source of fresh water, choosing instead to carve out cisterns of muddy water. In other words, they have abandoned the Lord, who is the source of their blessing, and they have chosen to seek counsel in Everything else but the Lord. And the Lord um, illustrates or 
compares that to here you have the cistern of fresh water and instead you've rejected that, hewn out your own own cisterns and they're muddy and nasty and you say, yeah, this is good. No, it's not. This is evil. Two evils. You've abandoned me and and you have chosen that which is not helpful or healthy. They have sought their blessings from other nations. When they did that, it required that they bow down to the idols of those nations. They, they have sought the help of Egypt. They sought the help of Assyria. They sought the help of superstitions. But those things are not the source of blessing. And in fact, we're going to see that over and over in Numbers. God brought us out here in the wilderness to die. Let's go back to Egypt. That's the source of our blessing. That's the source of our good. And God is reminding them before they ever take, take foot, one step towards their, their promise, God is saying, I'm the source of your blessing. Egypt is not. Assyria is not. Moab is not. These are not the source of your blessings. You see, we have too often sought to find satisfaction in that which was never meant to satisfy. These are broken cisterns. We put our hope and seek to find satisfaction in things like achievement and possessions or relationships or respect. If, if I had blank, fill in the blank. If I had blank, then I would be blessed. Those are broken cisterns. If I, if I achieved this goal, then I would be blessed. If I attain this possession, then I would be blessed. If I only had a husband or a wife or a better husband or a better wife, then I would be blessed. If I only had the respect that I so deserve, then I would be blessed. Broken cisterns. God is the source of all blessing. We are prone to give ourselves to idols. The reason the emphasis is on the Lord as the source of blessing is because our natural tendency is to forget that He is our blessing. We are by nature idolaters. Maybe just a little help in trying to figure out how can I know where my hope for blessing is found? Well, I would uh, offer this as a small tool. Maybe in your fasting and prayer, you can ask the Lord to show you some of these things. But consider your your daydreams and your fears. Ian Dugrid says this. He says, idolatry often shows up in what we fear the most. What do you fear the most? More likely than not, that's where your idol is. And it's a broken cistern. I fear lack of respect. If they don't show me the respect, that I, that's my greatest fear. Lack of achievement. Remember when I was very involved in racing bikes, I would sometimes think, what would people think if I don't win today? I remember on one particularly bad day, I didn't win. And I came home, and there was Simone who still loved me, still wanted to make sure that everything was good, consoled me in whatever needed to be consoled. And she was there. Even my dog. It's like, you know what? It just doesn't matter. Why should I care what anybody else thinks? I have a great wife at home. What do we fear? Lack of respect. Conflict. I'll do anything to avoid conflict. That's your idol. Being useless. You know, I used to be able to do all of these things and now I can't. God says, I'm your, your source of blessing. I am your source. Everything else is a broken cistern. 
And so we begin with this idea, with this truth, that Lord, the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, this is God's word. Bless the people of Israel. This is what you will say to them. And this is what Aaron says. The Lord bless you. Well, I guess then that brings us to another question. What's a blessing? And here it's very, very simple. Blessing is God's favor. It is having God's favor. And in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of, of the Bible, blessing is associated with land and children. In other words, God is saying, I am going to work on your behalf in such a way that all will know that I am your God and you are my people. I will give you towns that you did not build and vineyards that you did not plant. I will go with you and I will speak my word to you and I will bless you. This has much to do with temporal and or material blessings. You are my people. I will defeat your enemies. I will make your crops grow. I will make your livestock give live birth. Blessing then indicates his care. It is having the favor of God and that favor of God is manifested in these temporal um, blessings. Remember though, our poem builds to a crescendo. It begins with the temporal promise, but it's going to become much more full. It's not going to just end with, I promise to give you great, cool stuff. Blessing is grounded in God's promise to Abraham, whom God will bless. Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And then God says this, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to the nations. So one thing to remember is that the temporal blessings that God bestows upon us are to be enjoyed by us. Those are elements of his blessing and they are to be shared with others. This is one of the reasons why we say a blessing before a meal, right? We're not simply saying it to like protect us from like food poisoning, though that's probably a good thing to do. But the blessing is we are acknowledging from where that, that food came from. We are acknowledging that this is a blessing, a material, temporal blessing from God. That God has put this on our place. We thank you. We bless you. We, we are blessed by God. So blessing is grounded in the promise of God to, be, to act in a favorable way. And so the Lord bless you and the Lord keep you. As I read this idea of the Lord keeping, I couldn't help but be reminded of Psalm chapter 121, verses 3 through 8. Listen to this. He will not let your foot be moved he who keeps who keeps you will not slumber, and he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. He, the Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The idea of the Lord keeping us is to guard us, to protect us. The keeping of the Lord is the preserving power of God to keep us safe. The Lord will bless you and protect you. God is able to keep his covenant even when his people cannot. God can keep it. In the New Testament, we see this, I think, Vividly in First Peter chapter one verses three through five. Blessed be the Lord, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is unperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God is able to keep his own until that last day. I made a covenant with you. I promise to bless you and to keep you, to guard you and protect you 
God is even protecting your inheritance, your eternal inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, protected by God Almighty. And so the Lord is able to provide what we need and He is able to protect us from harm. They will need this when they're wondering where's the water and where's the food. The Lord has promised to bless us and keep us. And then we see that the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. I want to address this, these next two lines by dealing um, with the first half of each line and then, then I'll go on and deal with the second half of each line because I think they're parallel. So the Lord make His face to shine upon you and then the Lord lift up His countenance upon you. I want to talk about those two things first. The Lord lifting the, the face of God. The face of God. See, because I just told you that the blessing of God are temporal, uh, primarily temporal blessings. Your crops will grow. Your livestock will produce. Your children will be healthy. You'll have food on the table. But the blessings of God are not temporal in totality, nor is at the end of God's blessing. As I said, the poem rises to crescendo. And so now it's going to lift up. It's going to build even further. And now the blessing moves not to the temporal things, but to the very face and presence of God. See, blessing is more than God's provision. Blessing is God's presence. And true blessing is knowing God face to face. And so these two parts of of the poem deal with the face of God. And the first one is to make His face shine upon you. May the, the Lord, the Lord, make His face shine upon you. This is a picture of God's delight. His face lights up when He is with His people. Think about that. Perhaps we think about When we think of somebody's face lighting up, maybe you think about a child on Christmas morning and you see their face light up over all of the things that are under the under the tree and their face lights up. Or you think about, um, uh, you know, a child seeing his his mom. He's kind of she's been kind of doing chores somewhere. She comes in the room and the child's face lights up. I think about, as I was pondering this, I think, where do I see the, a person's face light up? And I was, and I was reminded, I, I see this often in weddings. It's so prominent in a wedding. I'm standing at the front, me and the groom and whoever else happens to be there. And the wedding song, the wedding march, whatever's been chosen, starts. And for the first time, the groom's future wife enters into the building. And you guys probably don't see this too much because we all turn to look at her. But just once in a while, look at the groom. Oh my. His face. I mean, I know her face is lit up. But it's amazing. When he sees her coming down the aisle, it is a thing of magnificence. This is the face of God on His people. It is a picture that the Lord delights in His people. Like a groom when he sees his wife for the first time, well, for, on their wedding day, coming down the aisle going, there she is. It is God's benevolent disposition on of God towards His people. It is the glowing, not the glaring, upon an undeserving people. God's face shines upon us, though we have no... There's nothing deserving about it, and God's face lights up. I wonder, when we walked into the room today, at God's bidding, I know God is omnipresent. He is everywhere present. But God has called His church to gather together in a place. I wonder that as we came in, the face of God lit up. My people are gathered in this building to hear my word. 
Oh, what a joy. Oh, what a, what a delight it is that my people have come. We know, certainly are reminded, when Moses met with God, his face shone. But here's the thing. The face of Moses shone when he communed with God. But the blessing here is not that our faces shine when in God's presence, but his face shines when he's with us. That's an amazing thing. His face shines. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. And in verse 26, and the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance. This literally has the idea of the Lord smile upon you. This contrast with the hiding face of, of God. Lord, where are you? Why do you hide your face from us? This is the exact opposite. The Lord has not hidden his face, but rather he smiles upon his people. In the wilderness, they're going to be faced with difficulty. But even in the midst of the difficulty, God smiles upon his people. He has not abandoned them. God's favorable disposition is present with his people and he will keep his people. This is such a a vivid passage of text. We hear people say the the God of the Old Testament is an angry God. Really? Have you read Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through 27? He smiles upon his people. His face lights with delight when they are present, when they are all present together, when he is present with them. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. And so we have this temporal blessing. We have this promise of protection. We see God's um, uh, favorable disposition to his people. Remember this. As you get ready for your journey, when you go into the wilderness, when you begin to suffer difficulties, remember these words. The Lord bless you and keep you. And then we see the second part, half of each of these last two lines. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace. So we've seen the face of God. Now we will see the grace of God and be gracious to you. The question then is, how do we receive this blessing? And the answer to that is it is freely given. And be gracious to you. How is he gracious to us? It is given to us freely. How do I get the smile of God? How do I get him to light up? It is that friendly disposition is a, is a gift that he gives to you freely. And this is so contrary to, to the culture of the day in which this was written. In the ancient Near East, people believed it was necessary to twist the arms of the gods for their favor. They needed to manipulate them or trick them. Even sometimes they had to trick them. As though the gods, I mean, they had such small gods that they could be manipulated and tricked. Well, if I do this and I say these words and if I do these particular things and I say all of this, then God will have a favorable disposition to me. Then God will give me the thing that I need. It was these pagan priests who served as somehow the connection who could get you favored access with the gods. If you come through me, I know the right words. I know the right things. I know the incantations. I can prescribe to you the superstitious activities you need to do that will twist the arms of God, the arm of gods of the gods so that they will do what you want them to do. They are not sovereign. They are manipulated. And as a priest, the priest's the pagan priests would know these secrets. Just reminded me, have you ever been on in customer service um, Hades? 
And you just wish, man, if I could just speak to the right person, if I could just jump ahead, if I knew the right buttons to push, knew the right person, they could get me to the front of the line. This would be taken care of in about two seconds. What I need is somebody who can help me jump the line. In the ancient Near East, the gods were manipulated in such a way and the priests were the ones who could get them to the front of the line. Aaron, though, is simply the communicator of the message. The communicator that God is not manipulated. God is not tricked and he is not bribed. His blessings come as a free act of his sovereign grace. I want to bless my people. I want, I desire to smile upon them. And this is why we think things like the prosperity gospel and word of faith message are so horrendous. Because they say that God does not want to bless you, but if you know the secret words, if you say the right thing and do the right thing, then you can jump ahead in line and you will twist God's arm and he will be forced to do what he previously didn't want to do. That is not the God of either the Old Testament or the New Testament. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. It is unmerited blessing. As though God is somehow saying, I don't want to do anything, but if you make me, then I suppose I'll send you some manna or something. I don't know. Grace is freely given by God because God is gracious. I want you to make note of the timing, though. The timing here is amazing. Notice who's, who's to communicate this message. Aaron, and then, of course, his sons. But Aaron is the high priest. So Aaron is the first one. This is why we call it the Aaronic blessing. But Aaron is going to speak this blessing to this group of people. And very recently, not too, too many months or months earlier, Aaron, at the prompting of Aaron, the people fell down and worshipped a golden calf. Aaron said, Moses has been on the mountain for too long. Give me all of your gold. And he fashioned a golden calf and he said, this calf, this golden calf is Yahweh. This is the one who delivered you out of Egypt. And the people fell down and worshipped. Aaron. Aaron did that. And it was very recent. Very recent. And now Aaron is the one being told to speak this blessing. Here's the amazing thing. God is telling Moses to tell Aaron to convey this message of grace. Aaron is the one who should have been a heap of ashes on the desert floor. And now he stands before the people as exhibit A of grace. And he talks about God is gracious. I know God is gracious because I should be a grief spot. That's it. And I'm not. I'm here before you today. Why? Because of the grace of God. I stand before you today as exhibit A of God's grace. See, Satan lies and he tells us that God will not forgive. But Aaron is exhibit A, that the Lord's face shines upon them and is gracious. I think we all could need to be reminded of the grace of God. And so the grace of God and the peace of God, this peace, you all know this word is shalom, and it is the climactic word in this benediction. And it's so powerful because peace, shalom, is not simply the cessation of hostility or turmoil. It is the sum total of God's good gifts, including his presence. Most importantly, his presence. 
So all of this build, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you shalom, a wholeness, a peace. God is not your enemy. He is not coming after you. He does not hate you. He is gracious and he smiles in your, when he's present with you. Think of this verse. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. Speaking of the coming Messiah of Christ. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that did what brought us shalom. That brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. Luke chapter 2, verse 14 Glory at the birth of Christ. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. John fourteen twenty seven. We read, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives you do I give you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Peace. John 16.33 as Jesus prepares to depart. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation but take heart. I've overcome the world. Jesus is about to experience when he says those words Jesus is about to experience the very opposite of the ironic blessing. He will not experience the blessing of God, but the curse of God. He will be cursed by God. The wrath of sin falls upon the curse. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Not the blessing of God, but the curse of God. The powers of hell will not be restrained. He will not be kept. He will not be protected. He will end up succumbing to the... To the um, to the forces of hell and the forces of men, the smiling face of God turns into, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And by doing so, he guarantees that all of the blessings of Abraham, of Aaron fall upon those who trust in him. He took the curse. He was not kept. The smiling face of God turned into the frown, to, to abandonment. Why have you forsaken me? You've turned your face from me. Where are you, God? All of these things so that you and I would experience the blessing of God, the protection of God, the eternal protection of God. Our inheritance is kept in heaven by him. That we never need to cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God smiles upon us and his countenance is lifted up upon us. And, by, and the peace of God that passes all understanding resides in, in us by the work of Jesus Christ. And the final line, it's not actually part of the blessing, but it is part of our text. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. I love this. I will put my name upon them. This is possession. And we see it all over the Bible. But let me just make a few mentions, point out a few in the book of Revelation where we see this so clearly. My name on the people, put my name on, on the people indicates that I possess them. They are mine. Revelation chapter 3, verse 12 the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven and my new name. I will put my name upon my people. And they will be secure in my place. Revelation chapter 14. Verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written upon their foreheads. These were the possession of God. 
And then Revelation 22.4, as we get near to the end of the, the story, they will see his face, which is smiling and shining, and his name will be on their foreheads. They are mine. It is done. Everything that I've been working towards is now coming to fulfillment. You are mine, and I, and you can look upon my smiling face, and my countenance is upon you. So I might ask this question, when did you receive your name? Well, you received your name at birth. When did you receive God's name? At rebirth. You became his possession. He put his name upon you and he declares you his. He doesn't mark you with a tattoo or with any other thing. He marks you with his name. You are mine. You belong to me. My name rests upon you. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel and I, I will bless them. The mark of the possessed possessed of God are that they are blessed not only temporally, but the very presence, the very presence of God is what marks them out. You have the very presence of God dwelling with you. So this is perhaps one of the most well-known passages of text in the Bible, certainly in the book of Numbers. I pray that this morning we've had an opportunity to be encouraged by it. I just want to encourage you today and and, um, bless you today that God has promised the Lord, the Lord, has promised his blessing upon his people. God smiles. His face shines. He lights up because of you. It's an amazing thing. He's gracious. Every single one of us should be grease spots in the desert, heaps of ashes, and we can stand and say, but the Lord is gracious. And therefore, I have peace. Whatever happens around me, regardless of what happens on November 3rd, the Lord is gracious and merciful. And I can have peace because of that. Father, we come before you this morning and we praise you and we thank you. What an awesome truth. What a wonderful fact that we see in these words. And that you've entrusted these beautiful words to a flawed individual like Aaron. And then you've entrusted these beautiful words to a flawed individual such as myself. And while I'm shaky and and up and down, your word is certain. Let us hold fast to these truths. These truths will sustain us. Because when things aren't always good, Lord, we know that. Our journey tomorrow may, who knows what it will be. I don't know. But I know this. The Lord is blessing. He's gracious. He smiles. And the inheritance that he has promised is kept and protected in heaven for us. So, Lord, we come before you this day and we give you praise and thanks. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing and rejoice.